This is Bites of Good, a show where we explore how anyone can get involved in the world of technology, social good, and civic tech, no matter where they are in their journey. My name is Bryant, and in this season, we're exploring how people can get involved in the world of technology policy. These days, issues of equity, privacy, and power in technology regulation have come to the forefront of public concern. However, the world of technology policy can be extremely confusing. What is tech policy, and how can you get involved in it? In this episode, I'm chatting with David Robinson, the co-founder of the nonprofit Upturn, about how he got involved in the world of tech policy. Just a quick note here. When we recorded this episode, David was teaching and researching at Cornell. Today, he's a visiting scholar at the UC Berkeley Social Science Matrix and is on the liberal arts faculty at Apple University, the internal education group at Apple. He asked us to tell you that his new book, Voices in the Code, will be coming out in September of 2022. The book describes how people work together to rewrite the moral logic of an important algorithm. The algorithm that allocates kidneys for a transplant. Alrighty, back to the episode. Yeah, uh, let's get started. Uh, so would you like to begin by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, my name is David Robinson, and I'm a visiting scientist uh, in the AI Policy and Practice Initiative here in the Cornell uh, Department of Information Science. And uh, back in 2011, I co-founded an NGO called Upturn that works for equity and justice in the design, governance, and use of digital technologies. Uh, What was your education like leading up to tech policy? So I had a bit of an unusual path. I actually trained in philosophy in undergrad and then ended up going to law school. Why did you ultimately pursue a career in tech policy over your more formal training? I uh, actually had an experience as a kid that got me really interested in technology, which was that I, um, I, uh, when I was when I was in elementary school, I uh, struggled uh, with school a, a bit because I had a fine motor impairment. My handwriting was very wobbly. I have a mild case of cerebral palsy. And they eventually brought in a word processor for me to use, a keyboard, computer and keyboard for me to use to do my writing assignments. And it really made a huge difference in my life because before that, being a good writer had meant penmanship. And then uh, after that, I could move text around and could write really quickly. And really, writing was was better with the technology than it than it had been before even for someone who did who didn't have a disability and so i became very excited about the impact that technology can have in people's lives and later on when i was thinking about where to go in my own career one of the things that i noticed about the experience that i'd had as a kid is that instead of a new technology needing to be invented in order for my life to improve. I mean, the technology of word processors had been around for many years, but what needed to happen was that the policy needed to change so that I could use this technology in the school setting. And I, I, I took from that a broader lesson that if you really want to improve people's lives through technology, one of the most powerful things that you could do 
would be to change the policies so that technologies that can help people uh, or can be beneficial in the world actually get used where they can do the most good. That's an interesting point, and it's awesome to hear how the computer and keyboard helped you with writing. We'll return to the broader discussion of tech policy in just a bit. But first, we'd also love to learn a bit more about Upturn, the policy think tank you helped co-found. Could you briefly tell us how you got that started and the organization's journey to becoming a nonprofit? Sure. So the way that Upturn started was I had been working in a lab that was a policy and computer science research center at Princeton uh, that was newly being established. And I worked there and then gone off to law school. And when I was wrapping up law school, one of my friends from the lab, a guy named Harlan Yu, was wrapping up his PhD in computer science. And the two of us uh, actually had worked together with some other colleagues on research about how government could use data um, more effectively. And it was what was then called open government data. And this actually uh, had, had, had come across in uh, initiatives like data.gov that the Obama administration was starting uh, right around the time, right after we wrote this paper, in fact. So we kind of put this idea out into the world and the policy, the policy world really picked it up and ran with it, that we should take public sector information about, you know, health or the environment or bus times or legislation and put it out there in ways that, you know, people could put on a map or could analyze or search or reuse. And that became a very uh, popular idea. And so we sort of thought, Harlan and I sort of thought, we want to keep working in this area of policy and technology, but we didn't see a clear way to do it. You know, there, there weren't very many clear on-ramps for us in technology and policy. If you wanted to be a lobbyist for Google or Facebook, you know, or if you wanted to just work on sort of technology and privacy itself, like if you wanted to work, there was the Epic, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, some other uh, long-established groups. But it seemed like there was a translational step that was missing of really explaining technology to policymakers uh, and making a clear view of the technology more readily available to sort of people all, all over DC. And so we, we actually began, before there was a nonprofit, there was a consulting firm. And we thought, you know, we'll work with governments and we'll work maybe with companies to kind of help people understand how technologies work. And that was the 1.0 version of what we did. That was actually called Robinson and You. It was a, a consulting practice. Um, and we ended up actually working on a whole series of, of, of public interest issues, things about uh, anti-censorship technologies, uh, and eventually really settled in to a focus on civil rights and helping uh, leading civil rights organizations to respond to new technologies. So how does big data impact uh, civil rights and impact things like hiring and people getting access to housing and healthcare, traditional civil rights issues where new technologies were, were sort of changing the, the landscape. And as we settled into that work, we eventually became a nonprofit um, because 
really it was it was a public interest mission. And, you know, one of the things you have to do when you're starting a new organization, of course, is keep the lights on. So, you know, you have to get money to kind of do whatever it is that you're trying to start. And, you know, people talk about startups and they often talk about something that's going to raise capital and have a lot of people and a lot of money and grow very quickly. What we were doing as a business was very traditional, actually, and very modest in its scale because we were basically a professional services firm at first. I mean, in other words, we were consultants. People would pay us, you know, at the very beginning, it was by the hour and then by the project to write reports for them or do research or analysis. And basically, the two of us had just finished. Harlan just had his PhD. I had my law degree. And we pulled out laptops in our living room and started doing work. So there weren't, you know, capital costs. We didn't need to buy servers uh, or anything like that. Um, didn't need to hire, you know, a, pro, a, a team of engineers. Uh, but uh, eventually what we realized was we were really doing public interest work. And um, the primary funding for that eventually came from major foundations. So the Ford Foundation was our first large funder, uh, and then eventually uh, MacArthur and the Open Society Foundation and others. Um, and so the way that that funding works, it works better if you're a nonprofit uh, recipient for those those grants. And so that's how we ended up becoming uh, a, a nonprofit. And the other thing that changed over time, and this is also sort of was a personal growth thing, at least speaking personally, you know, for me, was we started out with a very, very optimistic view about technology. I mean, with our government transparency work. So we wrote this paper that started all of our collaborations called Government Data and the Invisible Hand. And this was where we were saying, if you put data out there in formats that are easy for people to reuse, great things will happen. People will come along and uh, create new ways to track legislation. People will make the government more transparent and more accountable. And there will be this sort of, the vision was, this technology will inherently cause a political transformation for the good, right? It will make government easier to to uh, supervise. It'll make, uh, you know, corruption more difficult for people to carry out. Um, and uh, what ended up happening as we worked more on open government data at the beginning of Upturn's life was that uh, certain things that we had hoped were true were true. Service delivery sorts of things you, you could get people to do. So we were with open government data, you could get a bus schedule out there in real time, and that made the whole bus network more valuable, right? The things we don't even think twice about today, like it'll tell you when the next bus is coming. Well, that makes it easier to use the transit system, which helps to justify more investment in public transit, which is great. But the idea that open government data would somehow inherently lead government offices to publish all of their spending data so that we could find out if anything, you know, inefficient or corrupt was happening. That that turns out, I think with the benefit of hindsight, that turns out to have been naive. Like government 
agencies are not going to publish data which disrupts their operations just because you asked them to or just because you said, this is our new technology initiative. And so basically, the idea that the technology would inherently improve democracy or would inherently make the government more accountable turned out not to be true. And in fact, if you had governments taking credit for uh, open openness when they would publish data in new formats, but sometimes those same governments were becoming less democratic. So for instance, um, in Hungary, if you if any of your listeners happen to be students of the politics of Central Europe, they'll know that over the last 10 years or so, Hungary, the country, has really slid from something like democracy or some form of democracy into some form of, of uh, autocracy. Uh, meanwhile, um, the, the bus schedule in Budapest is uh, published as open data. They're big into open data, but it doesn't mean that they're being democratic. And I think what that forced us to realize, and the same, by the way, was true in the U.S., where uh, weather data or transit data is public, and there are some benefits to that, but legislation is still confusing and hard to read, and it's hard to sort of understand what's happening with the finances in government. Um, one of the things that that forced us to realize was that uh, we had been wrong about this idea that technology is inherently good for democracy. And so, you know, I told you at the beginning, I, I started out as a real optimist, partly because of what had happened in my own life, that technology had made it possible for me to engage more effectively in the world. But what I came to see was, eventually, was that the picture is more complicated and technology can, in fact, reinforce uh, existing power structures. It can make the powerful more powerful. You know, there's a there's a saying about people that are trying to do good in the world that they that they afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Um, but eventually, we realized technology can comfort the comfortable and afflict the afflicted. Yeah. No. And uh, I think you know you you mentioned that you know. Uh, technology can reinforce existing power structures. And so uh, we kind of wanted to know more about, you know, some of the challenges when, you know, partnering up with different organizations and, you know, establishing these partnerships, you know, well, who, what type of people would you, or what type of partnerships and organizations would you try to seek out uh, once, you know, Upturn was up and running? And, you know, do you find, whether were there difficulties in trying to find these partnerships um, and, you uh, what type of organizations did you seek out to partner with? Uh, we really ended up partnering, I would say, with organizations that had complementary expertise to our own. So even though lots of technology organizations in Washington work on the same issues, for example, uh, at the time we were getting started, one of the big issues was net neutrality. So making sure that ISPs would not... Um, uh, block competing video, for example, from their internet service, so that they would, so that they would sell more cable subscriptions. And there were a bunch of of groups working on those issues. And we sort of said, you know, we think we can do the most, do the most good by partnering with civil rights organizations that have expertise in core topics that are being impacted by technology. So, for example, one of the initiatives that Upturn worked on 
was an issue called payday lending. So these are high interest loans that are offered at storefronts uh, and sort of check cashing places, typically in low income neighborhoods or near uh, military bases. And they uh, are very high interest rate loans and people get trapped where they pay a little bit of interest every week, but they can't pay off the loan. And so they end up paying many more times in interest than they actually borrowed initially. And this is what's, this is, people refer to these as toxic financial products. And they're actually banned or heavily regulated in about half of US states. But on Google, if you would type, I need money to pay my rent, ads would come streaming in from payday lenders who would say, well, I'm in Nevada, the lender would say, where there are no laws that restrict what I'm doing. Or I'm on a Native American reservation, where it's not even subject maybe to federal lending law. And uh, for years, advocates who work on financial issues and payday lending had been trying to get Google to block these, these lenders Let's say, for instance, in Philadelphia. So in Pennsylvania, there's some of the strictest laws in the nation against payday lending. But users in Pennsylvania, when they would Google for money to pay their rent, they would get these extremely high interest loans being advertised to them. And Google, I think, was taking advantage a little bit of an out-of-date idea that policymakers had about how the Internet worked where policymakers thought there's there was this famous internet car, uh, cartoon in the new yorker in the 1990s that showed a dog sitting at a computer terminal and the caption at the bottom said on the internet nobody knows you're a dog and this was kind of the mindset i think that policymakers still had in the 2000s and the 2010s was like well Google is sort of out on the internet, so we shouldn't expect them or we couldn't expect them to, for example, uh, enforce Pennsylvania law when they're showing ads to users that are in Pennsylvania. But what we showed, we did a report, Upturn, we did a report and we showed that actually Upturn, that actually Google is is proud of knowing where each user is and they know when someone's in Pennsylvania. And it even says that at the bottom of your search results often. It says exactly where you are, right? And they, they figure that out because that helps them sell ads. And so once we did a report that sort of demonstrated this, uh, the advocates in the financial inclusion space were able to go to Google and say, why are you showing ads for a product that's illegal in Pennsylvania to a user who you know is in Pennsylvania? And that turns out to be a totally different conversation. And after months of working on this issue together with advocates and working, collaborating with people at Google as well, uh, the outcome was that Google decided to ban advertising for payday loans from its platform, which, uh, you know, prevented a huge amount of misery uh, in people's lives, I think. That's that's probably... Uh, one of the outcomes that Upturn has achieved that I'm personally proudest of having been involved with. Yeah, and uh, that sounds that's awesome. And you know, I, I feel like you know, that takes a lot of you know different uh, skills and different you know backgrounds to kind of create that outcome. And so we're kind of wondering uh, how you know what personal and academic experiences provided you with the skills uh, or connections to build this policy think. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really good question, Bryant. And I, I, you know, 
it's not the technical skills necessarily that are the most important. I think policy is a team sport. You know, you're building coalitions all the time. You're trying to get people to agree on what should happen next. And one of the things which is which is interesting about it and is a little bit counterintuitive, I think, when you I mean when you read the newspaper and you read about politics, it's full of people having very sort of strident very strongly held opinions about what should happen and really disagreeing and kind of being purists about exactly what their philosophies are. But in order to get things done in a democracy, you have to be able to find compromises with people who have slightly different philosophies, perhaps, than you do. And so, for example, you know, something like this payday lending issue People from different groups that had different ideas about what the ideal law should be or what the maximum interest rate should be or, you know, uh, whether or not there ought to be a federal law uh, had to kind of come together and we had to sort of find a middle ground and get to a point where um, we could agree on a policy. And so part of that is really a kind of diplomacy um, so let's say, for example, that we were going to write a letter. One of the things I was involved in was writing what were called civil rights principles for the era of big data. And this was a, an effort that was really the first time that the traditional large civil rights organizations in the United States were weighing in on issues connected to big data or what we might today call data science or algorithms. Um, and so it said things like, you know, if we have historic data about who was able to uh, get a job or excel in a job uh, or who was risky, who got rearrested in the crime setting, let's say, that those those kinds of historic data can reinforce biases and can actually cause injustice. And, you know, in order to get all of those ideas distilled down to one side of one sheet of paper and have a long list of different civil rights organizations all signed on to the same principles, which was powerful and got people to pay attention. But in order to get everybody to agree, there was a process almost like legislation of hammering out exactly how the language was going to to be worded. And that's where I found that my training in philosophy and law and being you know really clear with language became a really important part of what Upturn was able to do. Um, at the same time, what is also important and what Upturn also, I think, always brought to the party is a willingness to get into the details on how the technology actually worked. So, for example, knowing that Google knows where it's sending these advertisements to, geographically speaking, um, understanding what the technologies are, are, are capable of, because that's what really sets up what is possible in policy, is how do the technologies actually work. And so I think, and I try to impart this when I teach, you know, I, I taught ethics and policy and data science, uh, you know, here at Cornell. And I think even for people who may have formal training in other fields, as I myself do, rather than in computer science, having a certain level of comfort reading a technical document understanding how a new piece of technology works. And, you know, it might be a research paper um, or it might be the documentation for an API that somebody is using uh, 
to set up some kind of new product or service. Uh, but understanding how technology works, being able to look in to the details and really zoom in patiently on those, that is a skill that's very valuable because ultimately you have to boil it down for policymakers who not only uh, are they not computer scientists, but they also are very, very busy and don't have time to get deep into the details. And so you have to sort of find the essence of things and bring it to the to the table for people and say, this is what's important about how this system works. All right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that, you know, this was a team effort and, you know, you have to kind of use these different skills and bring, you know, something very clear with, you know, very clear and concise language to the table. And so we're kind of wondering, you know, at the end of Upturn, you know, do different people kind of specialize in different things, you know, as the organization has grown, has the team grown with different people with different backgrounds? Yes. Yes, it absolutely has. The team has grown. Uh, I'm very proud of that. There are about a dozen people now who work at Upturn and people are specializing. Uh, and that, I think, happens naturally in any organization as it grows. So at the very, very beginning, it was uh, Harlan and I. And then we, uh, the first person to join us was Aaron Rieke, um, who had been at the Federal Trade Commission. And his he had some had background both in computer science and then became an attorney and had really, that's a powerful combination. Uh, and we uh, grew over time and diversified, you know, on a number of dimensions, uh, the skills of our staff. Uh, so eventually, for example, uh, a data scientist uh, came aboard who actually uh, applies the tools of data science to analyze policies and to help us uh, do the research that happens at Upturn. And also, uh, diversifying in terms of gender and race and background, which um, beyond being important, I think, in in any organization, that's particularly important given that the substance of the issues that we work on is civil rights. And so, you know, trying uh, to build equity within our own organization has been an important part, I think, of Upturn's growth and development. And the other thing that's been important, that's been a big change for Upturn is at the very beginning, we were a consulting firm and we sort of picked clients that we believed in, but we didn't really have our own philosophy of right and wrong. We didn't have our own vision of what kind of an impact are we trying to have in the world, what kind of uh, world are we trying to build? And Upturn now is very explicitly committed to civil rights, racial equity, to equity for people that uh, that live uh, in or that or that begin their lives in in poverty. And that uh, change, I think, has enabled us to recruit more effectively and to collaborate more effectively because we sort of we know where our North Star is as an organization. So I'd say there's there's kind of been a, a natural evolution toward more explicit advocacy. And honestly, I think part of the reason that I myself eventually uh, chose to uh, go back toward an academic role is because I felt like there was an aspect of what should Upturn be and what should Upturn do that at the very beginning, in the early days, we were... Uh, still figuring out. And eventually we sort of did figure it out. And Upturn now has a very clear 
mission. Um, and for me, uh, those earliest days in some ways were particularly appealing because I like it when the ideas aren't clear yet and we have to kind of work on that. And once Upturn got to the point where its ideas were very clear, I felt like it was time for me to kind of uh, take on some new projects in, in, in academic settings. That's how I ended up uh, at Cornell. Yeah, and that's awesome. We think it's great that Upturn focuses on civil rights and advocacy. Uh, and, you know, it seems, Upturn seems to have, you know, very well established itself in the tech policy space now. And so zooming out a bit, we kind of want to talk more about the general policy space. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you mentioned topics like net neutrality and payday lending earlier, and we'd love to get a broader look of the tech policy space to start off with. Uh, so, you know, what are some of the most discussed topics in this space nowadays in 2021? So I think there are different ways of looking at um, what we mean by tech policy. There's sort of different ways of drawing the circle. One way is you can really start with technology and you can say, well, what, you know, what's important about what's happening in the technology industry or the telecommunications industry? So that would be things like uh, the cost of broadband or things like what are the rules on social media? Uh, who can speak? Who can be heard? But also what happens with, um, you know, abuse and bullying and sort of the misogyny that we see on social media that tends to silence women, for example, or to silence uh, uh, trans people or other other kinds of uh, people who might be sort of socially uh, at the margins uh, in one way or another. And, and those issues, I think, are very important. At the same time, uh, if you start by saying, I'm, I'm curious about policy issues that are technology issues, you're going to sort of zoom in on certain things. And if we, if we ask more generally what's important that's happening about technology's impact in the world, you know, we might end up in settings where the people involved don't really think of themselves as tech policy people, but think of themselves, for example, as criminal justice, uh, uh, you know, advocates or practitioners. Uh, so, you know, the criminal legal system, you have uh, risk forecasting of who should who, who's dangerous and belongs in jail. The people who are doing that aren't and don't think of themselves as tech people, right? Their focus is criminal justice. Similarly, you know, increasingly there are uses of um, credit data, credit file data to do things like uh, determine who can get insurance or who can get uh, rent uh, a home. Um, and the people working on those issues think of themselves as working on housing or working on, uh, you know, uh, finance, consumer financial issues. So I would say that it's important to look beyond tech as such, right? There's almost a kind of... Um, kind of chauvinism or pride that can happen, where if someone has background in technology, it can be tempting to say, well, I want to look at the issues where technology is at the center of the spotlight, you know, where we think of it as a tech issue. But really, so much of the impact happens in areas, you know, hiring, another great example, all kinds of new technologies. Many of my students um, in my class 
found that when they wanted to apply for internships or jobs, they had to sit in front of some kind of video uh, analysis, higher view, or these other systems that are going to attempt to or purport to understand someone's personality or emotions relevant to their possible job performance based on what they see, what this what this algorithm sees through a webcam. And, you know, that's not considered a tech policy issue. The question of how do, you know, questions about that, you know, you could ask the policy question, I suppose, is should it be permitted or restricted in some way? But there are more basic questions like how do we know what it's measuring? How can we decide whether it's working? Um, Should we just trust the companies who say that it's working? Um, You know, those kinds of questions, uh, which really are questions about employment as much as they are about you know, AI as such. And so in order to find the most important issues, I actually think it's necessary to bring to the table a kind of humility and say, look, technology is important, but we don't have to focus on tech. We don't have to call the issue tech policy. We can call it employment. We can call it criminal uh, legal reform if we want. Um, what's really important is to find those intersections and work on them together. So you mentioned that, you know, it's super important to find the intersection between different spaces and work on it together. And so from your experiences mm-hmm. over the past couple of years, how has this evolved in the space? You know, what type of collaboration, stakeholders, how has that kind of changed uh, in the past couple of years? Well, I think one thing that is changing is that, um, you know, part of the reason that Upturn partners with civil rights and other organizations that sort of have a topical focus, let's say, for example, a focus on employment or housing, is because those groups themselves have not tended to have on their staff people with technology or data science background. But over time, that is beginning to change. And so organizations that work on all kinds of different issues are recognizing the need to bring technological expertise in-house. Um, and there are different programs for this. There are fellowships uh, that are being ramped up uh, to help people to, or to help organizations to bring expertise uh, in-house. Mozilla has something. Uh, there's this thing called Tech Congress, which is uh, providing technical expertise to congressional offices, members' offices, or committees um, to help them have some uh some depth when they're looking at technological uh, issues. And so I would say that that's a major change is, you know, one of the questions that someone with tech background can ask now that I think when Upturn was starting was really less of a question is, you know, well, might I go to work directly for an organization that's working on an issue that I care about and where technology is making some kind of an impact? And it might be that the issue or the organization that I go to work uh, within uh, is not outwardly technology focused. It might be, for example, that I'm interested in hiring and employment, and I go to work for an organization that focuses on that. And maybe I bring technological skill to that question or background to that question uh, but but a lot of uh, of the best, I think a lot of the best work 
might be under the issue umbrella instead of under the technology umbrella. Gotcha, gotcha. And so kind of backpedaling a bit, you mentioned something about, you know, you mentioned making an impact. And so mm-hmm. how do you measure impact in projects? That's a really great question. How do you measure impact? And the truth is, it's really hard for policymakers. So imagine, uh, Brian, that you and I were going to team up and try and get a new law passed. And we work really hard on it. And thousands of other people work really hard on it. And there's a long debate. And finally, it is passed. And then and then we say to ourselves, OK, uh, I guess whatever we did was really helpful. Uh, you know, the two of us out of the thousands of people that worked on this issue. Or conversely, if it almost passes and then it doesn't, then we'll say, well, I guess whatever we did didn't work. But of course, we don't really know. It could be that uh, we did the best possible thing we could and we provided the most uh, influence toward the outcome that we wanted that we possibly could have provided. And yet we still were not successful for reasons outside of our control. Or conversely, maybe we did something inefficient and we were shooting ourselves in the foot and maybe even what we did backfired, but the thing we were trying to get done still got done. Then we would say, oh, we did a great job, but you don't really know. And so it's rare to have a direct line between what you personally do or what your organization directly does and the policy outcome. So for instance, the payday lending uh, thing that I mentioned earlier, you know, we were directly talking to Google uh, and and we got them to change their policy. And it was clear that those conversations led to that change. But often you don't have that kind of clarity about impact. And so I actually think um, there's sort of impact measurement is a nice idea and it's good when you can do it. But you have to take all that with a grain of salt. And so, you know, making personal judgments about what is helpful uh, can be really important. And taking the long view can be really important. I mean, I remember when I was a student and I thought people in policy, uh, in public policy, are always scrambling to get, you know, votes on the amendment or something. I guess I was imagining you know, some idea of like the drama of the final moments of policy change. But of course, most moments are not the final moments of policy change. Most of the time, as I came to learn when I worked in policy, people are working on things like trying to change the conversation so that the range of possible new policies that seems reasonable or the people are debating among the window, it's sometimes called the Overton window, of what are seen to be reasonable outcomes are in the right place. Um, And that is about changing how people perceive the world, changing the assumptions that people make. That sort of happens over, could be many years. And so sometimes the most important work is the hardest to measure the impact of. Gotcha, yeah. And you mentioned about, you know, pursuing different outcomes. And so we're also kind of wondering about what goes into deciding what stance to take, right? You know, can stances change as you pursue an outcome or as you learn more about stakeholders? Um, you know, you know when, when do you think you should take an abolitionist perspective? When should you not? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I think opinions and policy positions can and do change as people change. And one of the things that's very important is that is that you know we all 
stay open to to learning and to changing our our views you know the the question of when to sort of take a more relatively speaking a, a sort of more uh, extreme position or a more moderate one or even what it means for a position to be extreme or be moderate can change over time i mean certainly in the last few years as we've seen um, the range of policy options, let's say in criminal justice, that seem uh, possible uh, has widened, right? So there are conversations about, you know, abolition, uh, you know, of the police or about, you know, big structural changes to how courts work. Um, and I, I struggle with this. I think one of the things that's really hard is that if you are the kind of person who comes to the table with, you know, for, for instance, um, Ivy League training in data science or computer science, then, you know, um, the odds that you are living in the kind of settings that civil rights advocacy is centrally concerned about, you know, are, are relatively low. So, for example, a lot of the people I worked on 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 criminal justice reform issues, the criminal legal system. We we you know advocates who are um, careful about this kind of thing don't like to call it criminal justice because they say, uh, with reason, uh, it often doesn't produce justice, and so you know don't give it that kind of gold star when you're even talking about how this system works. And it's true, um, it's a terrible system in many many ways, and you know people sent to jail, it's its really a life-destroying thing that happens to presumptively innocent people every day. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I think, you know, there, there are these things where y you can get kind of um, disconnected easily from the realities of, of, of people on the ground. You know, this there's this thing where if, if you have the training to be a data scientist, then you might really miss some of the realities that civil rights is is targeting and one of the things that really surprised me for example in the recent mayoral primary in new york city where i live for part of the time uh is that the candidate who was the abolitionist relatively speaking i would say maya wiley was closer to being an abolitionist and this other candidate eric adams a former police officer uh not only won the uh nomination but he dominated in the areas that are most heavily policed uh, in housing projects in Brooklyn in the South Bronx you know those are the places that uh, where, where where police activities are are really most uh, salient as a political issue and what survey data show and what those voting outcomes showed in those communities was that many of the people who live there um, even though the police are often, an instrument of in, in, injustice in particular cases, uh, wanted uh, strong police presence to continue in, in, in their communities. And so I do think that if we're sitting in, uh, you know, an Ivy League lecture hall and deciding whether or not we ought to advocate abolitionism, it's hazardous in certain ways, and it's easy to be disconnected from the ground. And so personally, you know, what I come back to is some aspiration, you know, people talk about what is your North Star? Uh, you know, what values, you know, are you an abolitionist or a reformer? And really the North Star that I try to come back to in all of this is humility. 
And what I try to say is, look, you know, people have all kinds of experiences and all kinds of perspectives. And having a clear sense of what ought to happen is good. Uh, but deferring to people who are close to a situation is also good. And so sometimes I think the best thing that we can do, rather than necessarily have a strong view of our own, is to sort of allow the people closest to a problem to set the terms of its of its of its solution. And I think um sometimes that means more listening than speaking. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, you know, zooming out a little bit, right. Uh, we you did mention that, you know, a lot of uh, people, you know, sitting in the lecture hall, CIS students, right. You know, they're not super, uh, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say what different, um, you know, what different outcomes to pursue given our stance and given where we are. And so kind of, that kind of leads us to the question of how do we get involved and so, uh, so for someone who is a CIS student, what are some concrete steps one can take to get involved in the tech policy space and where do we begin? So I think one of the most important things that students can do is to follow the debates that are the kinds of debates that you might want to be working on later, right? So as a student, start to look what are the organizations that are working on issues that I think are interesting? Or what are the topics where I see technology intersecting with various kinds of public interest work, for example, or data for good? You know, subscribe to some email lists, see what groups are doing, see what the issues are. And through that, I think you can also get a sense often of who the players are. Uh, you know, so who's who's writing the blog posts, who's signing the briefs, uh, who's being uh, quoted in the press. And, you know, I have found that many of the people who work in this field, you know, were students at some point asking themselves these same questions of how do I get involved? And so in general, uh, people are often happy to 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 chat with you know, students who have a serious and a sustained interest in these topics. I think one of the things that you can do as a student is, you know, pursue internships at nonprofits that are working on issues that you that you care about. If you're if you're able to do that, I know that at Upturn, one of our uh, things that we do because of our commitment to equity is that our internships are paid because we don't want to exclude. Uh, people who need to earn money over the summer from being able to to work with us, um, and I that's a practice that I think is spreading. There also are um, there are uh, programs that provide grants uh, to students to work in in nonprofit settings, um, and I think you know one thing that those that those sorts of activities do is they give you a taste of what the work might be like. Another thing that they do is that they give you an opportunity to demonstrate the seriousness of your interest. Because I think, you know, one of the things that's hard is there are many, many undergraduates. And, you know, if you ask them, you know, would it be cool to work on, you know, AI and civil rights, maybe like half or more of all students might say yes. So, 
if you sort of want to end up being one of the relatively small number of people who actually do that, then um, you need to uh, do either whether it's through extracurriculars or internships or your own writing or, you know, research classes that you take. You need to find ways to make it obvious so that if somebody glances at your CV or your transcript, they're going to see that it's really true that you care about these issues and are curious about them and that you've been paying attention consistently over a period of time. Consistent interest is one of the most important things that I think um, you can you can really create evidence of as an undergrad. And then later on, I should also say, of course, there are questions about grad school and what are the right kinds of training. But I think it's often a good idea to get out there and um, be in the world after undergrad uh, and really accrue some experience and get a sense of what's worthwhile for you to do, because otherwise it's hard to make an informed decision about grad school. Gotcha. Yeah. And so earlier we talked about technologies becoming a part of the conversation in policymaking. Uh, but however, not all of our listeners are software developers and data scientists, right? Some are more involved in designing products, but are also interested in tech policy. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to ask the following question. How much technical experience or understanding do you need to get involved in the tech policy space? Yeah. So how much technical understanding do you need to get involved? I mean, Maybe the answer is different today than it was uh, 10 years ago. I, you know, don't have formal training in technology. I think that if you are able to read a computer science paper and get a sense of what it is actually saying or finding, uh, then you're way ahead of much of Washington. So um, there is... A question about, you know, how do you get to that level? And I think the answer there is you need some exposure, some training in engineering. But I don't know that it necessarily needs to be your main focus of your studies. I think that um, getting to the point where you can read something uh, is partly a matter of building a kind of confidence. Because if you think about, for example, what a vendor does at a city council meeting who says, I've come up with this great new product and it can tell you who, you know, who the dangerous people are in your town, um, you know, they're relying on members of the city council often not to feel comfortable asking specific questions. What data is this based on? What outcome is it predicting? How would we know if it were working or not? Um, and so, you know, Partly, it's just giving yourself permission to slow down and to read carefully and slowly the material that is that is technical in, in, in nature. And I think that's more of a personal quality than it is a credential. And if you have that, people will, I think, ultimately be able to tell that you do. Um, so, for example... Just as a, an illustration of this, when we, uh, and I hope I'm not giving too much away here, but when we were interviewing people at Upturn, we used to give them a technical thing to explain and we would tell them in advance, like, you know, several days before the interview, we would say, we want you to explain how TCP works. That's the the packet-based system of, of conveying information on the internet. Like, pretend I'm a busy policymaker. Tell me, how does this TCP thing work? And we would, 
you know, and people would learn. And, you know, they one one person, actually a former colleague of mine who was very successful with this said, you know, well, if I'm if I'm sending packets, imagine if I were moving to D.C. for a new job and I have all of my stuff in Boston and I have to put it into boxes and then I, the boxes might go in the mail in different trucks. Anyway, she had this whole analogy. Uh you know, which, of course, the, the punchline was I'm moving to D.C. to work at Upturn, which, in fact, is exactly what she ended up doing. So, you know, you never know. Yeah. And uh, this has been super insightful, you know, in regards to shining light on the tech policy space. Uh, but I guess before we go, we really want to ask one last question as to, you know, where would you like to see the tech policy space moving towards in the future, especially with an increased number of students studying CS with a passion for tech for social good? What I would like to see is... Uh, and this is happening a little bit already, but I'd like to see this continue, is let's have less of a focus on tech as a separate policy area. Let's weave our way in so that the information and the, and the insight around technology is available inside the organizations and the conversations on particular issues. So instead of thinking, oh, I'm a technologist, for example, we should have people in the in in the in the housing space who say I'm working on housing. We should have people in the employment space who say I'm working on jobs and trying to make good jobs available to people, uh, and and really have it be a matter of using our technology skills and our training and our background in ways so that. It's not the technology that defines us, but really the human needs that we're trying to meet. Thank you so much for listening. Our challenge to listeners this week is to pick an issue you care about and search for a local organization working on this issue. Dive into their social media feed, or even better yet, get your hands dirty and sign up for one of their online events. See if it's a fit. If you're interested in safety, injustice, or economic opportunity issues involving technology, please take a look at Upturn.org. Or, if it's not your cup of tea, don't be discouraged and keep looking. This is only one step in your journey. To see our show notes and other resources for getting involved in tech policy, please visit bitesofgood.org slash podcast. We'll see you next time.